Welcome to the Cohort Sisters podcast, where we bring to life the stories, struggles, and successes of Black women navigating doctoral degree programs and their lives beyond the degree. I'm your host and the founder of Cohort Sisters, Dr. Ijama Kola. Cohort Sisters is an online global network empowering Black women pursuing doctoral degrees by providing resources, mentorship, and community. For more information, please visit our website at cohortsisters.com. You're listening to episode eight of the Cohort Sisters podcast. This episode is a conversation I had a few months ago with Dr. Lamea Harper, who I first met when we served together at church in New York City while we were both pursuing our doctoral degrees. Dr. Harper received her PhD in biomedical sciences from New York University and is now a science content writer and a pastoral ministry student. She shares why she went back for another degree post-PhD, how she thinks about bridging the gap between science and faith, and strategies for crafting successful fellowship and grant applications. Let's get into our conversation. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this. Thank you for being part of Cohort Sisters. I love it. Very good initiative. Good job at taking the leap and starting it. Looks like it's turning out beautifully. Yeah, it's been amazing having so many people join from all around the world. I think that's what I was most surprised about. So like just, it's like a worldwide thing. So let's jump into, uh, I know your name, so you don't have to say that, but where are you from? Where do you live now? Hi, hi, I'm Lamea Harper. I am from New York, born and bred, but I am now living in Sydney, Australia. And what are you doing in Sydney, Australia? Yeah, I moved to Sydney at the beginning of the year uh, for Bible college. I came to get a certificate in pastoral ministry and here I am doing that online in Australia which is amusing but you know are they offering it online to people who didn't like move for the college yeah actually Mm -hmm. during this COVID time they got the like necessary stuff that they needed to do like official online only okay which is really awesome from a like pivot perspective yeah but it wasn't available online but it wasn't a location available in Arizona I could have gone to oh, okay. but I came to learn some stuff and that yeah. was like the first year they had it in in the U.S. and I'm like I want to go to where it has been tried and true yeah <laughs> to the store. and I always love a reason to travel and go somewhere that's not yeah. home yeah so. how's the experience been so far in Australia it's been really good both pre and post COVID. <laughs> yeah. I wish I would have taken more advantage pre COVID because now things are like all messed up post. Yeah. But it's been good. The classroom experience I really like, like being back around other students and like having those engagements, interacting with lecturers and professors. Mm-hmm. It was getting cold because it's hot here mm-hmm. in January. So by the time things started like really picking up with COVID, which didn't happen late, Australia has been extraordinarily well. And so that is a blessing but luckily the weather started to get not so nice it was lovely I went to the beaches I went to the mountains mm-hmm. I really enjoyed it it surprised me how it hasn't I knew this but it was no less surprising that 
the lack of people of color here. Oh, no, that's not true. Let me be specific. Black people here. Mm-hmm. I've told myself I, there's nothing that could ever make me go back to school again. <laughs> so I'm curious, what made you decide to go back to school after you already have the highest degree of the land? Yeah, it's so different. The PhD is very academic, where I think my my passion comes in and the things that I really care about is science on one hand and then faith on the other, but the intersection of science and faith. And so when I think about what I want to do, I want to work in, build, develop an organization that is geared toward young people that are interested in science yeah. that have an inkling for it, that think they might like it. And I want to give them high quality science experiences particularly people from underrepresented community or marginalized communities where their opportunity for that specific type of program is like the YMCA. The YMCA offers great programs, but it's Legos, whereas like science programs, they do robotics and stuff. Mm -hmm. And like, Mm -hmm. I wish I would have had an opportunity like this. Like my niece, Mm -hmm. I wish she would have an opportunity like this. And that's when I realized that she didn't. When I went looking and saw how expensive it is, I'm like, this you're this is not geared toward people like me and you. That's not nice. Mm-hmm. So the more I thought about the organization, I realized that I didn't want it to just be a kids interested in science, because I think there's a lot of those programs, but more so I wanted it to be just a whole life kind of program. I'm like kids are kind of selfish nowadays. I don't think it's individual, but I think it's the way that society is raising them which gets me to thinking that society is raising our kids and those values aren't necessarily the ones that I think should be reflected in young people, period, but not scientists or really anyone. So I got to think and I'm like, I want them to have like good qualities, core qualities. And I thought about the qualities that I liked about myself and where and what I developed them. It was only when I got saved that those really started to be developed and I started to recognize them as an entity. So generosity and servant heartedness, like ability to put others before yourself. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, those Christian values are values that should be represented in a, in a Christian person. Just put a little caveat. Mm-hmm. I want those qualities in these young people. And I'm like, okay, how do I like merge these Christian values into a science organization in a way that's not Bible bashing or like pushing my faith onto others? Mm-hmm. And I realized that I think Hillsong, which is where I was saved at and where, I, where I'm going to college now in Australia. I'm like, I think they did it well. I just went to church, not a Christian. And then I became a Christian and then I became a strong Christian. And I like the woman that I became and it didn't feel forced. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, there's something in the way they're training their pastors that is producing environments that are the same everywhere you go. How do I do the same thing? How do I find these characteristics I want to embed into a person and just embed it in there without saying like, if you do that, like you're bad, you're selfish. So I was like, oh, I'll just go to the source of the matter. I came to Hillsong College to learn how they do that. Like how do they implant those core qualities, those core characteristics into a person so that I can translate that and like figure out how to program with that same heart in mind. So I came back to school to learn more about God and that because I'm, I got the PhD. I know the science. I feel like <laughs> I should have a little bit more faith official training. I'm going to dive into something that's looking at it too. Uh, I just like love to see people like doing interesting things like after, you know, we get these degrees. So that is such a cool initiative organization. 
whenever you're ready to launch it, let me know how I can support. Because I think that's awesome. <laughs> I just love your approach to being like, okay, like what are the values in me that I like? And like, where did those come from? And how do I replicate that? But also like not in a way that's pushy. So yeah, that's just so yeah. cool. Oh, I'm so happy for you. Oh, that's so exciting. How long's the program? I'm in the one year program, but okay. you can do up to three years and just keep bumping up your degree. But I think that the one year is what I came for, the one year is what I was hoping for, and the one year I okay. think is what I'm going to do. Okay, nice. Is there anything else you'd like to share about yourself? Any like interesting biographical facts or hobbies? Interesting facts. I have a dozen siblings, one little brother and everyone else is older. So I come from <laughs> a big family. I just started paint by the numbers. So I'm trying to learn how to paint. Oh, nice. <laughs> As a hobby. Yes. I don't know. That's such a broad question. Yeah. I mean, just giving people an opportunity to say anything else about themselves. That's not just like your name and where you're from, you know, <laughs> but that's cool. So let's turn to your education and your educational journey, although it's still continuing, but we can focus on your scientific education. So what is your doctorate in and from what school and also what year did you graduate? I defended my PhD in 2017 and walked to get an official degree in the beginning of 2018. I went to NYU School of Medicine, their Sackler PhD program, and my degree is in the very general biomedical science, but my concentration was microbiology. Can you describe your dissertation project? Yes. I essentially studied how a, a bacteria, a dangerous bacteria, staph, so most people will know it because of staph infections if you go to the hospital, how that pathogen is able to sense nutrients in the environment in order to increase the productions of these deadly toxins that kill mm -hmm. certain blood cells. And so I looked at one particular metabolite that all humans have. It's important in metabolism. It's important in energy production called pyruvate. And what I found essentially was when a collection of staph pathogens, bacteria, are in media that's grown with this pyruvate substance, then the number of toxins shoots up it's high. It's like you put a dose of, of those toxins or if you put bacteria that have been exposed to like um, this nutrient into a mouse versus the same concentration of bacteria that have not been grown in pyruvate, the mice die within two days. Mm. So I have essentially studied how is it that the bacteria, that the staph pathogen is able to sense pyruvate in order to increase the production of certain toxins. So if you can imagine... We want to target bacteria. We want to kill it. We want to say, okay, how do we get rid of it? One hypothesis, one thing that I looked into is if these are the nutrients that the staph bacteria are using to increase its toxicity, then how do we stop it from doing that if we can't stop the metabolite itself, mm -hmm. the nutrient yeah. itself? And so I was able to identify a gene that coded for a protein that's responsible mm -hmm. for sensing pyruvate. And in some far research, you know, years from now, probably, but in theory, if this is one of the mechanisms that staph uses mm -hmm. in order to get people sick and kill people, give people staph infections, which can be deadly in some cases, maybe 20% of cases are, maybe we can target that gene in the pathogen, in the bacteria, and stop it from being able to induce protein production. Mm -hmm. Nice. Um, Why do we care? That's the key question. Why do we yeah. care? Yeah. <laughs> How did you kind of arrive to that research question? So that's a good question, which I'm going to take a step back because okay. 
I'll say that when I started at NYU, I was in a lab for three and a half years, almost four years. And I was doing completely unrelated research in a completely unrelated specimen in a completely unrelated lab in a different department. After a few years, I realized I needed a change. That was not the lab for me. And so in the beginning of my fourth year, I actually switched dissertation labs into this pathogen lab. And that decision was primarily based on who the mentor was. I realized in my last lab, the man was brilliant. Like the way his mind worked, his publication record, how quickly he graduated. But the type of mentorship that I needed was not the type of mentorship that he provided. And I could have stayed in that lab for three, four, five, six more years while I like worked it out on my own. But I realized I didn't want to do that. I wanted to be trained and I could have gotten the degree, but I wanted to feel like that I walked out of my PhD program being a capable and competent scientist. Mm. And I wasn't convinced that I could teach myself how to do that. And I wanted a mentor that could teach me. Mm-hmm. So I ended up deciding to switch labs. I found Dr. Torres, who was an amazing head of reputation of having a very hard but fair rigorous, but so compassionate, such a compassionate lab. And so I ended up going to his lab. We looked at the projects that were available. And I think we kind of came to this one in particular, because when I went in, I was very clear about what I wanted out of this experience. Mm -hmm. I'm going into my fourth year. And I was able to do that because I had my own funding. Originally, they were like, no, keep trying. And I'm like, if you don't say yes, I'll take all of my funding, switch schools but I'm not staying in this lab. And I think that's the kind of move you can pull when you have your own fund. And it's like, you lose me from this lab or you lose me from the school, from this program. But with that in mind that I had three years of funding, I was like, you know, I have three years of funding. I don't want to be a 10th year. I don't want to be a 10th year. And the average time in the biomedical science is like six, seven years. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, I know I'm already hitting it five and a half to six and a half, really. I'm pushing it kind of close. So when I was talking to different mentors about whose labs I was thinking about switching into, I made it very clear that I want to graduate in two to three years and I'm willing to put in the work, but you can't give me a project that's going to take 10 years to do because that's not for me. And we looked at the options. I didn't want to do any mouse work. I ended up collaborating with someone to do the mouse part of my work for me. I laid it down on the table. These are the things I do want. These are the things I do not want. I'm willing to do whatever you need me to do to make my dreams come true. And that's how I ended up choosing it. So it wasn't like I was passionate about staph bacteria and how they sense, you know, nutrients. Mm -hmm. But I did become passionate about it as I learned and got really excited Mm -hmm. about it. I appreciate you for sharing that because I think that's really important. It's not always that, you know, we're studying something that we're super passionate about. I think this even happened to me where part of the way through, I was like, I mean, I care about health disparities, but like, is asthma like the fight that I want to fight? Like, eh, I don't know. But you know, your options are, do you switch? And you did make the decision to switch, but you did it in such a way that you would still finish in a sensible time rather than stay for super long. For me, I, when I was really struggling, people would suggest like, well, why don't you talk about like natural hair and the natural hair movement as like a health social movement? And I was like, I mean, yeah, I could do that, but that would mean starting all over. Ain't nobody got time. So let's just write it out. Um, So yeah, I appreciate you sharing that because I think that that's something that current students would really benefit from. You know, sometimes you just gotta put aside the pride, 
put aside, you know, your passion and do whatever you need to get done because you have your whole life ahead of you to do the work that you really care about. And so things that mm-hmm. pop into my head though, when you say that one is, I feel like a lot, even people in my sphere, like there's someone, I think people who started in that original lab before me and they're still there. I graduated two and a half years ago. They were a year ahead of me. And so I think, I guess there are two different points completely, actually. But one one point would be, at some point, if it's not for you, you have to walk away. Mm. At some point, if you realize that this is not for you, you have That's to right. weigh your options and see if it makes sense to push it through. And like, okay, you have a year and a half left and you're miserable. Suck it up, girl. Suck <laughs> it up and finish. Yeah. You're a second year. You're miserable. You're not making any progress. You don't want to be there. Your principal investigator, your research mm-hmm. advisor doesn't want you there. Thinking about switching to another pro. I mean, that's a year or two lost, but mm-hmm. this is a six, seven year process. Like mm-hmm. that year or two means nothing. So you really have to be mindful of, do you stay and push it out? Mm-hmm. Or do you say, hey, I counted the cost and this cost <laughs> isn't worth it. I'm going to go find something that's going to be good for my soul and for my yeah. happiness and for my wellness. But I do know that as Black women, as women of color, as people of color in general, we do have a different level of essentially BS that we have to go through. Mm-hmm. And so I do encourage people to have a high tolerance, mm-hmm. not to endure the abuse. But if you jump ship whenever there is abuse in academia, be it in science or anywhere else, that's going to be hard for you because we're underappreciated and overworked, but we're still Mm. badass. Mm. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Agreed. Agreed on all counts. So you said you finished in 2017. What did you do between 2017 and moving to Australia for Hillsong College? I started thinking about, okay, what do I want to do with my life? Um, I think that's the curse of the PhD. You have so many mm-hmm. options, so yeah. many doors <laughs> open. And if you didn't have a set plan, like I'm going to go into academia, which a lot of people think, and then you know, four or five years in, they're like, oh, one, I don't want to do this or two. The opportunities <laughs> aren't there. It's like, what do you do then? And so for a long time, for forever, I thought I was going to go into teaching. I'm like, I'm passionate about the kids. I want to teach. Maybe I'll be a professor at a teaching college. Like, but right toward the end, like two months before I was defending, I was like, I don't think I want to do that. <laughs> like, do I only want to do this because the people in my life that I love the most, my mentors and like the people I look up to are all educators? Like, is that the reason? Is this what I want to do? And I decided I didn't. So NYU, in collaboration with some of the neighboring schools in the tri-state area, has an event called What Can You Be With a PhD, uh, which is specific to the STEM field, mm-hmm. sciences, biomedical sciences, but all the sciences really. And it's like a two-day conference all day, like 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. of different industries, academia, industry, uh, medical writing, um, mm-hmm. medical li- science liaisons, just like all over the publishers, writers, mm. all of the things that anyone has ever gone on to do with a PhD. They bring everyone out. They have panels, they have discussions, they have every other year. The last two times I went, I just went to the, like academia and teaching ones because I knew that I was, that's what I was going to do. But this time I was like, I'm going to go to the events. Like I'm going to go to all the things I never even thought of. Mm-hmm. What does one do with a science PhD in finance? What does that even mean? <laughs> so I'm going to check that out. Consultant, what does this look like? <laughs> and one of the things that I looked into was medical communications. 
which is essentially agencies that partner with pharmaceutical companies as their scientific storytellers. And so that's what I ended up doing. I met this woman, LaShawn, this black woman. She's just like her whole demeanor. I liked her, her. It was her specifically. <laughs> I'm like, if you are a representation of your company, I want to give it a try. So I ended up applying just to that company, um, kind of as a throwaway. I wanted to take seven months off. I finished in November. Mm-hmm. My birthday is in May. I was like, I need a break because I went straight from my undergrad. Two weeks after I graduated, I started in my first lab three months early. So it was just like no break <laughs> ever. So I'm like, you know, I, I want some months off. I just, I never had a summer off. So my original plan was to like apply to that just to get the experience of applying and then, you know, start someplace and maybe mm-hmm. after my birthday in May, June. Okay. But as it happened, they were looking for someone ASAP. So I took two months instead and I started doing scientific writing, content development essentially creating content to help doctors educate other doctors on um, either a disease state or a disease product. So lots of writing and strategy now. And I still do it part-time even when I'm here. That's cool. I didn't know that, but that is super cool. You've given a couple of snippets, but how did you end up in a doctoral program? What happened in college or even before college that told you I need to get a PhD? When I got to college, I was going to be a dentist because my chemistry teacher, she sat me down. She's like, you need to figure out what you're doing with your life. In high school, this is. And she's like, what are the things you like? What are the things you don't like? I'm like, you know, I really like you. I really like science. I'm very (laughs) people-oriented, as you can tell. I want to do something in sciences, but I don't like blood. I'm not really a fan of people all that much. I like (laughs) people, but the idea of like, being a doctor didn't appeal to me because it's like, just too much for my life. Don't, I don't want to do that. (laughs) So we decided dentistry. I was going to be a dentist. So I went to Brandeis for undergrad. I joined the Pre-Dentist Society. And it was okay, but I never realized that dentistry was gross. You got to be up in people's mouths. It can be gross. Like when I did my summer program, not with the cleanings, with the liver bands, when you put people for braces. So I really didn't have a good idea of what dentistry really meant. And when I did, I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. Around that time, I was just finishing my first year of college. I was miserable. I wanted to drop out. I was just like, because Brandeis is predominantly Jewish school mm-hmm. and coming from inner city Brooklyn, going to that, I was like, this is just exhausting. I don't want to be here anymore. And I had a boyfriend at the time who lived in, in New York. I was in Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. I was just like, but then I ended up working in the lab, doing dishes, not even doing anything like mm-hmm. science One of my mentors, she was like, why don't you like join a lab, get some experience doing something like something else, something to put in your resume so that when you apply to dental school, whatever you apply to, you can say that you've done something. And so I started working in the lab. I made media. I washed dishes. I cleaned the benches. And the PI liked me. She was like, oh, you're, you show up. Consistency, that. If there's a lesson to take home, be consistent with the small and the big, be consistent. So she asked me if I wanted to like come next like the next semester to come work in her lab and like be an undergraduate research assistant. And I loved it. I have really good lab hands. So like I was doing, I was doing science and it was hands-on and I really liked it. And when I was thinking about, and I'll fast forward two and a half years, now I am going into my senior year. Okay, what do I want to do? Those same two mentors who have been with me since the beginning of this college journey. And then also the same chemistry teacher who I'm still close with to today. 
they're like, okay, what about what about going and getting like a master's or a PhD? I'm like, oh, I don't really know what I want to do. Maybe not. But Dr. KC, she was like, listen, listen, listen. You don't have to make a forever decision right now. But for the thing that you're describing, having a PhD will only help you. You want to teach, a PhD will help you. You want to teach at the college level, you're going to have to have a PhD. You want to teach at a tier one institution, you have to have a PhD. She's like, and the benefit is, in the biomedical sciences, in the U.S., for the most part, and this is like a loophole to the system, after you do your proposal, after your year and a half, two years, two and a half years, however long your school takes, but usually about two years, you do two years of classes, you finish all your class requirements, you write a proposal for your dissertation, and if you successfully present this dissertation topic and you pass, you become a candidate for the PhD now, but... Through that, at a lot of schools, you can apply for your master's. So the professor was like, worst case scenario, you do two years. And if you really hate it, you walk away with a master's that you didn't just pay $60,000 for. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's good logic. Like, I, I can get a <laughs> Okay, it's good logic. And then I ended up, though, really liking research, um, having a lot of, having a good amount of, like, issues in general with just, just issues being a Black person, science in general. But NYU School of Medicine, when it was under the direction of Dr. Joe Oppenheim, who's just amazing, he had a, he doesn't say this, but this is what I say about him. He had a kind of a philosophy of recruitment where some schools will will say things or based on their actions and their recruitment, who are they recruiting, they say, we want the very best. And if those are all white people, then the very best are at our school. Versus Joel, he kind of went in, based on my observation, he went in with, we want to graduate the best PhDs we can. We're going to recruit the people with a lot of talent and train them to be the best. So in my program, we were it's just it was always the most diverse program, probably in the country, definitely on the East Coast. So... That was really great. So I liked my program because I was surrounded by these beautiful Black women and men just like killing it and rocking it. And I felt that sense of community, which for me, when I was applying, that was critical. I was like, Mm -hmm. how do you deal with diversity at your school? And when people, even students, like other students of color to whom I would ask that, if they would respond anything along the lines of like one person said, if that's what you're looking for, then then you're going to have a hard time because that's not the real world. I'm like, if that is how you feel, then you are at an institution that doesn't show you that that's not the case. And this is not the institution for me. And I applied to all top tier places. I was like, oh, no, no, no. I want you to say, here's all the effort we're making. We're maybe we're not there yet. You don't have to be the most diverse in the world. But I need to know that you recognize that not having diversity is a problem. Mm-hmm. Not having racial diversity, let me be specific, because they'll be like, you know, we have a lot of diversity and then everyone is white or everyone. <laughs> but, but you know, they'll have a gay person or two. I'm like, that's not enough. <laughs> that's not sufficient. <laughs> so I wanted to see uh, diversity in all areas, specifically mm-hmm. when I'm walking down the halls from class to class. I wanted to see some people that were not white or yeah. were not Asian because Asians are mm-hmm. overrepresented. Mm-hmm. particularly in the sciences yeah so yeah yeah that's why I kind of ended up there when I was trying to figure out where I wanted to go I was deciding between Wild Cornell NYU Yale Hopkins 
And, and they were just all such good schools. I'm like, I don't know what I want to do. Like, and Joel was like, hey, if you ever have any questions, feel free. Like, I'm happy to talk to you. I talked to that man every single week, not only like during my application process. And then after I had accepted, like was coming close to a decision. And then when I was making a decision, like he was so available. And the thing that really solidified NYU was the school for me, even though that was the only one that was an Ivy League that I had applied to. No, Hopkins is not. It was like of the five schools, a great name, but like the other names might've been more well-known. Joel, he was like, hey, let me tell you, these are the things, like here are the benefits of those other schools. Here are the, here are things you might not like. Here are the problems with NYU. Here are the things that you might like. The fact that he was so open and honest, I'm like, okay, if you're willing to be honest and tell me things, I was like, I don't know how I feel about that. If you're willing to tell me those things before I get here, then I know that I can trust you to be honest with me and you have my best interest at mind, not because I'm a black person and not because you want to like fill your quota, but because mm-hmm. barely even knowing me, you care. And I want to be at, mm-hmm. at a school that cares. Yeah. I think you're the first person who we spoke to who actually had like a diverse program and saw other, like several other black faces in your program. Can you talk about the importance of that um, and how that helped you kind of get through the program, if at all? For me, it was critical. I grew up in Brooklyn, which is very diverse. Not only diverse, but I'm surrounded by Black people. And I like that. I didn't realize how much I liked that until I was not surrounded by that Mm -hmm. a lot in college. And it just creates a sense of belonging and a sense of community, even if it's unspoken. But it was very spoken. Like, it it was very spoken. We were like, (laughs) Black people! And I think because a lot of, it was like a cohort of people that came from the Meyerhoff program, which is a program that produces the most Black PhDs out of University of Maryland, Baltimore County, UMBC. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of UMBC people had come to NYU. So they had like a family within themselves, mm-hmm. which could have been very exclusive and like, you know, the Black people over there, but it mm-hmm. wasn't. And it just created like a community within a community community people knew each other they talked and when you're going through things that are just like that was really gross and that's really problematic and that really hurt it's good to have other people that get it without you having to explain it I think that for me was the biggest thing that when I said hey my PI my principal investigator the person who ran the lab that I was in or the postdoc in that lab said this thing like they get it and empathize with me and I didn't have to sit there and explain how microaggressive and hostile like that would make an environment because people got mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. um so I thought it was beautiful I was constantly inspired actually it was one time that someone had come to visit she had she just finished her PhD at Hopkins and she came to give a talk and it was a it was a I mean the girl I love her I love her she gave a great talk and during it, I asked, I asked the question. It was a super basic question. Like whatever you're talking about in your science, I'm really confused about this basic detail. That I'm having a hard time understanding the rest of it. Can you mm-hmm. clarify this one simple point? And afterward, one of the other black guys who was a year below me, he was like, wow, LeMay, like this is why diversity matters. I was like, what do you mean? Like I asked this really like, stupid question. He was like, but that's the point. Like you felt comfortable with her, with enough with her to seek clarification on science that you're interested in, in a public forum, knowing that you wouldn't be judged or put down for it. 
And that matters. It matters that I could have expressed my scientific passion and interest and like, I could be confused around you and it's not a reflection on Black people. I could just yeah, be me having yeah. a question. And I think that matters, having that wow. like, environment around you. Mm-hmm. It matters a lot. I definitely would have been more comfortable asking all the questions I had <laughs> if I think I had a more diverse program on the student level and on the faculty level. So, but yeah, I never really thought about that. So thanks for bringing that to our attention. We talk about some challenges. I know how you had to switch labs. What are some of the successes? What are some of the happiest moments during your program? I'd say that in addition to being surrounded by people of color that inspired me constantly, and I just saw like selling, I realized the love for grant writing. Like I really enjoy finding money sources, writing for grants, applying, and I was I ended up being very successful at it. Mm-hmm. So every time I got that, like, yeah, you're a UNCF Merck fellow, you're NSF fellow, you're a Ford fellow, like that was really exciting for me. It was. I wrote this, like I did this, Mm -hmm. I got my own funding. I had an idea and I wrote about it. And there's a board of people somewhere that said, that's a good idea and that's validating. Mm -hmm. And it felt good. So I think that was definitely one of the highs. That and throughout in different programs, I did a series of them, but I was involved in a good amount of like community outreach at the school programs, STEM programs. Like I helped out at at a charter school those experiences, working with young people, having them to look at me, like seeing that I, I mean, I'm, I'm not particularly old. So they're like, wait, you can be black and young. Like you can be a black person. You could be a woman. You can be not a hundred years old and be in science and be getting a PhD. Like looking at the young people's response, it's super gratifying knowing that someone can look up to you and you're doing what you're passionate about. And they're inspired by, and even if it's not what you're passionate about, because you know, I just wanted to get out of there at that point, <laughs> but I was passionate about getting the PhD, what I was doing yeah. in itself, you know, hit or miss. All of those moments of like mentoring students and seeing them come into their own, seeing them come into my lab and like doing little science experiments, pipetting. Mm-hmm. It was great. It just, yeah. it made me feel like it was worth it. Mm. I love that. So you talked a little bit earlier and just now about funding, um, that you had your own funding and that you're the grant writing queen. How did you find the right fellowships to apply to? What are your grant writing secrets? And then also after you've told us the tea, (laughs) can you just expand a little bit more about the power of having your own external funding? It might have changed now. I heard that it did. I'm not really sure. But from when I entered, the idea was that if you're in the biomedical sciences and you're accepted, the school would cover you at least for the first six years of your PhD. And while you were in the biomedical sciences in our tri-state area, about six or seven years was all you really needed. So that was like, it essentially covered you. So I didn't need to apply for my own funding. Some people didn't apply for funding at all. Some people applied and didn't get funding at all, but I did. I, I applied to something when I was in college. It was the United Negro College Fund, UNCF had a partnership with Merck and they gave like scholarships. So in college, I applied for a scholarship and they had a research one for the PhD level if you were going into a PhD program. So that's kind of how I knew about funding because I wanted to get that fellowship when I got to my PhD program too. Because I'm like, oh, this is cool if I get it in both places. Yeah. And from there, even before I, in my senior year when I was applying, I was like, oh, there's a, a funding you can apply for now even before you get into the PhD program. Mm-hmm. I'll give it a shot. 
So I just essentially, I got on the internet. I was just searching like pre-doctoral funding for the sciences. And I just read through. Some of them require that you have a few years of experience. Like you have to have passed that initial proposal step. Some places are like, if you've got a good idea and you can write about it, we'll give you some money. So, you know, I spent some time, like maybe a month or two writing this, this, this fellowship proposal. I was excited. It was going to be so good. You had to put a personal statement. I had a great personal statement and I was, I was excited about this and it was a no. And it was so, it's not even crushing because that's too strong of a word, but I was like, oh man, like (laughs) I wanted to get it. I thought I did such a good job. And I really had, I was in my feelings a bit. And, but then I brushed it off. I was like, well, there's another one I can apply to next year. And there's another one after that. And another year, Mm -hmm. one after, like, I didn't get caught up in the fact that this one was a no. I was like, okay, let me go back and read what I had written and start to figure out what it is they're looking for. Mm -hmm. So first tip, you're going to get a lot of no's. At this point, funding, I think is like five, 10%. If you have, but some of the diversity ones are as high as like 15, 20% aimed toward people of color or marginalized people in general. But that even 20%, that means you're going to get eight no's for every two yeses. And those eight no's might come first. Like you might get those eight no's before you get that first yes. And so don't let that discourage you. That would be the first tip. In terms of actually choosing, go wide and far. Don't only look for the ones that are going to be full 55 $55,000 a year funding. Mm-hmm. Look for the ones that are going to be five ten. because one thing that people have pointed out to me, I was like, no way. But in retrospect, I was speaking from a position of privilege because I was getting funding. Once you get the first one, big or small, it makes the next one so much easier because if they know, hey, LaMea has gotten, someone else has thought LaMea's proposal was this good. Like, maybe maybe she writes good proposals and you get a second one now the way that your resume looks even if your writing hasn't changed all that much as soon as you get the first one big or small so even if you have to go small go for it like go for all the ones that you can go for because it builds your resume and it helps you move forward in terms of actually writing I'd say to know who you're writing to I think when I so I do a lot of like peer mentorship for people that are writing grants Mm-hmm. which hey maybe one day we'll like partner and we'll do it yeah have your, i'm like this like, is a whole like, you're doing like a whole workshop right now we need to have this on a separate panel <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things so hopefully i'll be able to do this in the future and make it a thing and like mm-hmm. hashtag pay me for my time yeah but <laughs> one of these days but in the meantime give the tricks away one thing that i'd recommend is know who your audience is People will write or use the same research statement or the same personal statement, no matter what fellowship they're applying to. But some organizations have specific missions in writing. Even if you're the perfect candidate, if you're not speaking to them specifically, they're not hearing you. They're hearing something else. It's kind of like if you accidentally wrote another school's name on your application. Your application (laughs) could be great, but they're like, "Mm, are you even looking at me though? Like, do you even see me? And to do that, what does their mission statement say? Why are they giving away money? Because people don't just give away money for no reason. It's because they have a passion too. And so, for example, with the Ford Fellowship, they're highly geared toward people that are interested in going down an educational pathway. If you write an entire essay, a beautiful essay, a beautiful research statement, and say nothing about wanting to go into education, 
then the likelihood that you're going to get this fellowship is low because you're not their target audience. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, if you all you do is talk about education, but you're pl- applying for a you know a NIH F31 grant, like a full academic fellowship, um, and you're not talking about the science, you're going to be like, "What are you doing? Like you're, I mean, great, good, good, like good, good on you, good job, but you're not for us. Apply far and wide, big and small." Don't get discouraged because a lot of no's can lead to a brilliant yes. And once you get the first one, it's like a domino. They just keep knocking. Um, Know who your audience is and have someone peer review your work. That is something I struggled with because I don't know. I was just really worried about like having people read my stuff and my personal statement. I'm like, it's personal. Why would I want someone to read this? Mm -hmm. But it matters. Your personal statement. And your research statement. When I went back, you know, when I went back and read that first one, I was like, oh my God, what was I even thinking? What was I, it was a train wreck, if I'm being honest. And I thought it was so great when I was writing it. But now that I look back, I'm like, I really wish I would have given this to that same chemistry teacher. Mm-hmm. I could have given it to my mentor, my bio mentor who told me to get a PhD. I could have given it to the dean who was encouraging me. There were so many opportunities to my research professor from high school, from, from college, like my actual mm-hmm. lab professor there. There were so many options. And she would have told me that this was busted and <laughs> gotta do it again, which I think goes into my last point of recommendation, which is start early because mm-hmm. no one wants to be rushed into reading your thing. Mm-hmm. And shabby work begets shabby results. And no one, I mean, mm-hmm. who wants that? You don't want to do it to yourself. You don't want them to see yeah. you like that. Yeah, those are all super, super helpful. So, okay, let me just get the order straight so we can report it. So you first had a UN. I had a fellowship from college, which I think allowed, I was a posse scholar, which is for college, going into your four years of college. In college, I got a UNCF Merck undergraduate science initiative fellowship, Mm -hmm. which was essentially money and a research internship at Merck. Okay. When I was a third year in college. And that's important because when I applied for the fellowships, like the predoctoral fellowships, those were kind of like, but look, I, I could write, like I got something going for me, which is why I say once you once you start, mm-hmm. it, it makes it easier. But the first one that I got was in 2014. So I started my PhD in 2012. In 2014, the year that I defended my my research. I applied to and got both the National Science Foundation NSF fellowship and mm-hmm. the Ford Foundation Predoctoral Fellowship. Got it. I ended up declining the Ford Foundation Predoctoral Fellowship because the NSF fellowship gave me full funding and NYU wouldn't let me keep the rest of the money. Like they wouldn't increase my salary mm-hmm. to the mm-hmm. maximum allowed. It was allowed. They were like, no, everyone, even if you bring your own funding, we'll give you $2,500 as a congratulations, a one-time. Some schools give you $2,500 for every year you have your own funding. And NYU was like, one time, we'll buy you a computer or we'll send you to a conference. And I was like, give me my money. And then the next time, <laughs> conference, and then the next time, I just like, did a different time. But yeah. I started with a dual Ford Foundation and NSF fellowship, declined Ford though. And then the next year, I applied to the UNCF Merck Graduate Fellowship. And then I got some institutional awards, but those were internal funding. When you have your own money, it gives you power and it gives you leverage. 
when you say like for example i wanted to change labs my institution said no that's not a good idea like we think you should stick it out i had already made a decision that i didn't want to be there i already knew i didn't want to i didn't need because i was a fourth year i was supposed to be a fourth year i didn't need another six months to think about it i've been thinking about it for the last two years um having your own money you can say hey i mean you don't say it like this but you can say hey i have my own funding i want to be at this institution but i need you to help me in order to publish for this university when you don't have your own money, you're kind of at the heavy hand of your research advisor, of your institution, yeah. and there's a lot less freedom. This mm-hmm. is, I imagine, to be less so relevant for the sciences, but probably more so outside of the sciences. Well, for the sciences, when you get fellowships and external funding, if you're interested in going to academia, that gives you a huge leg up when you go to mm-hmm. apply for professorships. Okay. If you can't bring in your own money, a lot of institutions see that as a problem and like, okay, yeah, but not so much in the sciences, but it might be in other places. The direction of your research, when you bring in your own money and you have your own research question and you want to explore something and you have your own money, I would imagine that you'd have more freedom to do that versus in the sciences. I feel like you, I mean, the research question is what it is. You can't really just change it because the funding that you get for research when you apply for your own in the sciences is to pay your stipend, to pay your paycheck. And not actually for the project. Although some of them, like UNCF gave us $10,000 for research. NSF gave us however much money for research. But it's primarily to pay your stipend versus Mm -hmm. to carry out the research itself. So I don't know if that's different in the humanities or social sciences. No, I think it's similar. Because I also had an MSF. And yeah, it's the same. Even social science. You're getting paid for your stipend and not your research. But also I think in the social sciences the school wasn't even paying for my research. Like the school was just paying a stipend. Cause I know, you know, we're not like in the lab. So if we're traveling to go to an archive or we're doing interviews, I actually don't know how they expect you to pay for those things. Cause I just paid, oh, for, wow. them. I just paid for them out of my stipend. Like there oh, was no so like research allotment. Um, you've given tons of advice, but what is one piece of advice that you have for prospective or current black female doctoral students? I think the one take home that I would say is really you've got this I think we hold ourselves to unreasonable expectations and we almost put ourselves down in a way that isn't healthy seek therapy I'm sorry let me just include that that's important but in a way that we're kind of downgrading ourselves and we're killing it and we're the only people that don't see it and as long as we don't see it people are going to treat us like we're not it and they're going to work as much harder on top of the more work we're already doing so you've got this keep focused find another black woman phd if ever you doubt that because we won't lie to you we'll be like hey you actually get to get your shit together you haven't been you've really been taking it like these last few months or you're killing it they don't appreciate it so find someone that you can trust that you can seek like that community with not and not only like you know one-offs on a community board for example but build relationships build relationships with other women of color build relationships with people at your institution because when push comes to shove the fact that I had strong people on my side when I wanted to switch labs that mattered it mattered because they have a they have a say find yourself an advocate on the peer level and then also on the professional level. That's a good tip. That's a really good tip. 
Is there anything that we didn't cover that you feel like is really critical to your journey as a doctoral student that you want to share that you feel like the group should know? Seek professional therapy, as good as a, a support network is, mm-hmm. having a trained mental health professional, get rid of that stigma around it and heal yourself. Heal yourself from the things that happened beforehand. Heal your stuff from mm-hmm. things that are happening in the PhD program. And when you finish, if you are one of those people that have already finished, tell yourself from what's already happened and entering into the like real world workforce because it's just, it's an onslaught. And if we don't take care of ourselves, we won't get taken care of. Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of the Cohort Sisters podcast. If you are a Black woman interested in joining the Cohort Sisters membership community or you're looking for more information on how to support or partner with Cohort Sisters, please visit our website at www.cohortsisters.com. You can also find us on all social media platforms at Cohort Sisters. Don't forget to subscribe to the Cohort Sisters podcast and leave us a quick review wherever you're listening. Thank you so much for joining us this week and we'll catch you in next week's episode.